Hello, John Solberg, the host of the best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less. And you're listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Podcast. Studios of Baseball and BBQ on Long Island, New York. This is episode number 190 of Baseball and BBQ. I'm Jeff the Oku Cohen, along with Leonard Hollywood Aberman. Welcome back to our show, and we are really psyched for today's show. Psyched. Jeff, I'm so psyched because we've got two great guests, but one of them I have yet to hear. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and, the two great guests are Lindsay Berra, granddaughter of the great Yogi Berra. And then we have Gloria Chebo, who is a baker, Who, well, a baker. She's been in the food industry for 40 years. She's currently a baker. Uh, baker Goog is her um, Instagram and whatever handle and all that jazz. But she's been in the food industry for 40 years, and her story is fascinating. So Lindsay Barra. Yeah, Lindsay Barra is the executive producer of the movie It Ain't Over, a documentary on Yogi Berra. And it's playing in select movie theaters across the country, and it could be on some streaming services. So check that out. Yeah, let's. we're going to talk about that in just one second. But I just want to let everybody know that Bet Online is your number one source for all your information, statistics, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines and the latest matchup reports for this year's Stanley Cup Finals. BetOnline is your sports intel headquarters this season as we have you covered for all your insider sports wagering needs from basketball and hockey to MLB, UFC, and boxing. It's the fastest and easiest way to get your betting information including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your home. Get into the action today. Head to the website or use your mobile device to join and be sure to use our promo code BLEAV. That's B-L-E-A-V to receive your 50% bonus on your first deposit. Bet online. It's where the game starts. And Jeff, you were just talking about Lindsay Barra who I did not have the good fortune to interview. I was disappointed that I missed that. But thankfully, my fill-in pinch hitter was Gary Mack of Mets Musings, as well as the Baseball Talk radio show, which he co-hosts with Rich Baxter. And I have not heard the interview yet. So as countless other people, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So Give me a little tidbit of something that I can expect to hear with you guys and Lindsay Berra. Okay, well, a little tidbit is, did you know that Yogi Berra was a natural right-hand hitter? 
There's a photo. There's only one photo of it of him batting right-handed that exists. It's in the museum, and he was natural a natural right-handed hitter. Most people don't know that. Right. Wow. Okay. Thank you. So that and that you talk about that in the interview. We do. Okay. So this is going to be pretty exciting. We had Lindsay's dad, Larry, on episode 183, and now we've got Lindsay. So we're we we're definitely keeping it in the family. Yes. So are we ready? We are ready for Lindsay Berra. Yogi, the word just makes you smile. One of baseball's greatest champions with World Series ring for each of his 10 fingers. 18-time All-Star, three-time MVP. Took both the Yankees and the Mets to the World Series as their manager. But Yogi was much more than a baseball player. A veteran of World War II who was there at D-Day. A business owner and a pop culture icon. A new film about the extraordinary life of Yogi Berra is now in theaters. It Ain't Over, distributed by Sony Pictures Classics. We have with us on Baseball and BBQ the executive producer. Lindsay Berra is a freelance sports journalist based in New Jersey. She is the oldest grandchild of Carmen and Baseball Hall of Famer Yogi Berra. She currently creates content for Mustard, the pitching biometric app developed by Tom House, and contributes regularly to Men's Health magazine. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Fast Company, the Sports Business Journal, and is a member of the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center in Little Falls, New Jersey. And pinch hitting for Leonard Aberman, who is on assignment, is the voice of the podcast Mets Musings, Gary Mack. Thank you, Lindsay, for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I have to say, I, I love the film. It was an impressive list of people who you've gathered for the film, including Marty Appel, Derek Jeter, Bob Costas, Willie Randolph, Billy Crystal. I have to ask, of all the people you reached out, how many have declined to be interviewed? I'm guessing zero. And nobody really declined. We had some some issues. Get, you know, we, we did a lot of shooting um, leading up to and then coming out of the pandemic and folks were just kind of unavailable at, uh, at the time. So we had wanted to get Jorge Posada, but he was in Mexico and we couldn't get Reggie Jackson. Um, but pretty much everybody else that we reached out to just was like, you know, when and where Let, let's try to get it done. Yes, uh, Lindsay, it's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I'm I'm here to not only to pinch hit for Len, because I'm probably old enough to have seen the only one old enough to see uh, your grandfather play. I'll be at the end of his career. My, one of my first memories is, unfortunately, was the picture of him facing the wall at Forbes Field as Mazeroski's home run went over. I saw him play in, in the early 60s, and, and as I said, he was heading towards the end of the career. You know, people always make fun of him, but I, I don't think they realize how athletic he was. I mean, he did play the outfield. He played, the, he was a catcher, of course, specifically, but played a lot of the outfield for the Yankees. How do you get that across in the, in the movie? I mean, there's just a lot of archival footage from Grandpa playing, uh, you know, throughout his career. And you can just see, when you see that footage on the big screen, just how athletic my grandfather really was. He was quick as a cat out of the crouch. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was five foot eight and 192, 195 pounds. He used a 34 inch, 35 or 36 ounce bat. And you watch the footage and he just manhandles that thing. <laughs> the strike zone, opposite field, pulling the ball. He could do whatever he wanted with that big, heavy bat. He was strong. He had the super quick hands. It's funny. I was just listening this morning. Someone sent me 
open source radio released an interview they did with my grandfather in 1998. And so it's this 25-year-old interview. And it's a privilege for a 45-year-old person to get to listen to her grandpa speak for 40 minutes. So they re-released this interview. And Bob Ryan, the columnist in Boston, called in and he was like, people don't understand how quick Yogi was. He could run the bases. He was fast. I don't think he gets enough credit for being the athlete that he was. And then another thing that this podcast, I didn't know this. And my dad, you've had my dad on the show. He didn't remember this play either. Apparently, in the 1960 All-Star Game, there were two that year. The second was at Yankee Stadium. Now, this is 1960. This is the tail end of Grandpa's career. And he's catching. And Willie Mays leads the inning off with a single off a Whitey Ford. The next batter hits a chopping ground ball and beats it out. So there's runners on first and second. Whitey's in trouble. Willie Mays steals third base. And they've got the the steal on. So the runner on first goes. Grandpa pump fakes down to second base and picks Willie off a third in 1960. Like towards that tail end. You just it just, you know, shows you what a great defensive catcher he was. And I, you know, I think people just forget how good he was. Oh, he was absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your father and uh, he gave us my, myself and Leonard Amen a tour of, of the museum uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when we came in, he he pointed out a picture of your grandfather with that a natural right-handed batter. Yeah, so Grandpa was a natural righty. That photograph of Grandpa in the museum, he's about 10 years old, playing in the sandlot across from Southwest High School in uh, St. Louis. He's got Joe Garagiola over his head with a full head of hair, so it shows you how old the picture really is. <laughs> um, he's, he's barefoot in that picture, and he's hitting right-handed. It's the only photo that exists of him hitting right-handed. Grandpa would tell you that all three of his older brothers were better ballplayers than he was. But when it got down to Grandpa Yogi, all three of them were working and they kind of ganged up on their dad. So one of them could have a chance to play. And they decided that Grandpa would have a better chance of making the big leagues as a left-handed hitting catcher. So they switched him around to hit left-handed. And, um, you know, I think we all know Grandpa probably isn't Yogi Berra if he's hitting right-handed. But he was crazy. (laughs) So natural righty, threw right-handed and hit left-handed in the big leagues. But he played golf right-handed, putt lefty, but carried a left-handed eight iron just in case he ever got stuck behind a tree. He could hit around and turn the other way. So as he said, he was amphibious, but he truly was ambidextrous. He could do anything with either hand. You'd be like watching him, like if you're chatting with him, eating dinner, he'll be cutting his steak with his one hand. And then he would stop and switch hands and cut his steak with the other hand. Wow. Try cutting your steak with your non-dominant hand. Like you'll impel yourself. I don't, I don't recommend you try it. It's very difficult, but he could do things like that. And and he was so talented. And I think uh, what people don't know is actually he was a war hero as well. Yeah. He fought so- World War II and, and Grandpa was uh, playing for the Norfolk Tars in the Piedmont League. So he was playing. For, he had a professional contract in his hands uh, in 1942 going into 43. And when he turned 18 on May 12, 1943, he just walked his butt over to the naval base in Norfolk and said, here I am. I enlist. Let's go. And wow. only Grandpa could be bored at basic training. So he uh, <laughs> raised his hand for a secret mission, which turned out to be the rocket boats uh, training for the invasion of Normandy. So he was on an LCSS wow. landing craft support small. He called it landing craft suicide squad. They uh, He was a machine gunner's assistant providing cover fire for our troops going ashore at Omaha Beach. 
twin 50 caliber machine guns, I think three thirty calibers and a whole bunch of rockets on either side. And uh, his, his job was to shoot at anything that came below the clouds. And then in the days after the invasion, he had the uh, not so wonderful job of pulling the bodies of mm. his uh, yeah. servicemen out of the water. And I think that that's something that forever changed him. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You mentioned in that picture, uh, Joe Garagiola. I can't imagine having a friend for 90 years. It's just <laughs> astonishing. They literally grew up. So their their fathers worked in the Laclede Christie Clay Works together, the brickyards in St. Louis. And they lived across the street from each other at 54, Grandpa at 5447, Joe at 5446 Elizabeth Avenue. And Joe used to say that Yogi was the first guy he ever saw. And I literally had Grandpa <laughs> on the phone with Joe the night before Grandpa Yogi passed. And so 90 full years, they were friends. Wow. Not only 90 full years, they were friends, but could you imagine if the guy who lived across the street from you growing up also was like the very best, the same thing that you're yeah. very best at, and you both end up in the Hall of Fame? I mean, it's just crazy. And I love Joe always used to say, most kids, when they make the big leagues, they're like the best player in school, the best <laughs> player in their town. But with Yogi across the street, I wasn't even the best player on my block. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how Yogi became a Yankee was fascinating. I know Brent Trinke signed Joe Garagiola for the Cardinals, but he's offered your grandfather less. Can you tell us that story? And it, sure. it was just fascinating. So there was an open tryout in 1942 at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. And Red Shane Deese was actually there as well. Red Shane Deese, Joe Garagiola, and my grandpa Yogi. And Branch offered Joe 500 bucks. And offered my grandfather 250 knowing full well he was not going to sign for half of what his best bud was getting. Um, he also told Grandpa that he wasn't good enough to be a big league catcher. He would only be a minor league player. And Grandpa <laughs> was crushed because it was his dream to play for the Cardinals. So he doesn't sign. But Branch Rickey has ulterior motives because he knows he's leaving the Cardinals and going to the Brooklyn Dodgers. So he wants to wait and sign Grandpa when he gets to Brooklyn. But in the interim, Grandpa's American Legion coach knew a guy who was the scout for the Yankees and George Weiss swooped in and signed Grandpa for the Yanks and Branch, Branch Rickey's plans were dashed. Um, uh -huh. But I think it's just it's a crazy game to play if you think about Grandpa as a Cardinal on the same team with Stan Musial or Grandpa yes. as a Dodger playing with Campanella, Duke Schneider, like all those. Would he oh, be a goodness. catcher? Who knows, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like a choose your own adventure book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when he, he was signed by the Yankees, he wasn't, I mean, he was mostly signed for his bat. He wasn't that good defensively. I remember reading somewhere, but he, wasn't he even worked. A technically. Oh, his, his rookie card, his tip, yeah. his, one of my grandpa's favorite, my, one of his favorite, my favorite of his cards, uh, 1947, his tip top bread card. Everybody can Google it. He's got this big <laughs> smile on his face, but it says Larry Berra outfielder. He's not Yogi the catcher. He's Larry the outfielder. That's pretty funny, right? Yeah. So, he, uh, yes, the Yankees needed a catcher, and and Casey Stengel brought Bill Dickey in and uh, to, as Grandpa said, learn him all his experience. Grandpa tells <laughs> stories about these horrible drills that Bill used to do, putting him at the at the um, Bill would be at the plate, Grandpa would be at the backstop, and Bill would just wail ground balls at him, hit hit with with the bat to teach Grandpa to block balls, working him and throwing down to second base. And uh, Grandpa would say he was a lousy catcher until Bill Dickey got a hold of him. <laughs> yeah. And you know what else I remember about him is that he always wore that bar mask. Yes. 
He never wore the cage type mask. He always wore that old fashioned bar. I just had to throw it in there. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's uh, like two uh, bars. And um, yeah, actually, in the film, you see a ball directly hits the bar and it's shattered. <laughs> it kind of split his nose open. Um, we have one on the wall in the museum that's a grandpa wow. model mask. And all the kids always ask me if the ball actually fits between the two bars. And I'm like, I have no idea, but that would be a really faulty <laughs> one if it did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Yogi gets to the Yankees and Casey Stengel's his manager. And he didn't call your grandfather Yogi. He always called him Mr. Berra. And when Mr. <laughs> Berra plays, we win. Yeah, they had a really nice relationship. He said, I never play a game without my man. That that radio interview I was listening to this morning, um, they asked Grandpa if he learned some of his funny ways of speaking from Casey Stengel's Stengelese. And he was like, I can't speak Stengelese. No way. Crazy. <laughs> um, but they had a great relationship. And then in the 60s, he followed uh, Casey over to the Mets as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And became coach of, of the Mets. What yeah. was his relationship with, you know, he... he I don't know. He he doesn't get lost, but there's with so many. He played with so many Hall of Famers on that team. I mean, throughout his career, he played with DiMaggio, and you know, he knew Dickie. He met Babe Ruth, and and of course, he played with Mantle and uh, uh, those guys. How does a guy like that get lost in the shuffle or with the numbers he put up? Yeah, it's just I, incredible, it's really amazing to me. He, you know. He led a team in RBIs seven straight years, and the team included Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. He was the so there's only two guys in Major League Baseball history to finish in the top seven in MLP. I'm sorry, M- M- MVP voting seven years in a row, <laughs> top four in MVP voting, right? And he won three of them, and that didn't happen again until Mike Trout did it, and Grandpa. Did, that was 50 years later, and Grandpa did it while catching 120 games Mm -hmm. there's so many just like incredible stats that i think just kind of get lost in the shuffle and i really think that it's because you know grandpa played his last game on may 9th 1965 for the mets and then he spent like 50 years making commercials being a manager being quoted by the press being quoted by presidents and I think there's just a recency bias. That's what people remember. That's the, what's in their mind is mm-hmm. grandpa as this funny older guy with big ears who says funny things on television, you know, popping the Pringles can and pointing at Yao Ming, right? That's what they remember. If you're <laughs> under 60, unless your dad or your grandpa or your grandmother did a great job of educating you about the early Yankees, that's the image of grandpa you have in your head. But I mean, I, the stats do not lie. Like he was just... such a sustained level of excellence over so many years. Uh, It's really like unparalleled. He was tremendous. Yeah. He he caught every day and even double headers. That's just unheard of today, obviously. Yeah. 117 double headers, both ends of 117 double headers. It's crazy. (laughs) He had 148 game errorless streak. I mentioned the seven years in a row in the top four of MVP voting, but he also got MVP votes in 15 consecutive seasons, which is tied with Barry Bonds and second only to Hank Aaron's 19. So think about it. There were writers who thought Grandpa was the most valuable player in the American League for 15 straight years. That's Mm. nuts. Totally nuts, right? And then my favorite 
grandpa stat is the, just his 1950 season, which I think is one of the best seasons in the history of baseball. 656 plate appearances, 597 at-bats. He hit three, 322, 28 home runs, 124 RBIs, and he struck out 12 times in the whole year. That's just yeah. bananas. That is, and you know what? It, it's it boggles my mind that he wasn't a, a you know a Hall of Fame in the first ballot. A lot, I will say, a lot of guys were not. Joe DiMaggio was not a first ballot. Yeah, I know that too. This was not a thing that they did back then. Right. I think today, undoubtedly, he would he would be one. You know, I know today people think, oh, it's such an insult if you're not a first ballot Hall of Famer, but yeah. this wasn't the way they did things. No. Yeah, your grandfather, I think, came along at the perfect time. He was part of the greatest generation. Served in World War II, a Yankee dynasty. He was there going from Joe DiMaggio to Mickey Mantle. He was also there for the beginning of television. You know, <laughs> I think that really, you know, really enhanced his, his persona. Did he know that at the time or did he appreciate that later in life? You know, he I, I wasn't there. I don't I don't know. He must have known it at the time because back then, you know, black and white TV, you know, there's that commercial, the cat food commercial with grandpa the talking yep. to the cat and it's the voice of Whitey Ford is the cat. They're just having a perfectly normal conversation. So he was on the, the endorsement bandwagon early on. I really think he was probably the first athlete to kind of embrace becoming a brand. You know, everyone talks about their brand, their brand. Mm -hmm. He did it without even thinking about it. Right. But I think for him, it was just like another way to make some cash on the side, you know. His best year in the big leagues, he made 60 grand, but it was one year. Most years he was making between 45, 48,000, which is about 500K, but it's a good, you know, in today's money, mm -hmm. it's a good living, but it's not the FU money that these guys right. are making now. He had yeah, yeah. He grew up for the, for most of these years that he, the first like five, six, seven years he played, he had to have jobs. He and Joe Graziola sold Christmas trees on the hill in St. Louis. He was the head waiter <laughs> at Ruggieri's the first two off seasons he was, oh, he was playing. He and Phil Rizzuto sold suits at the American shops in Newark. They worked in a hardware store and they got sick of all these odd jobs. They weren't very good at them anyway. And then they finally opened Rizzuto Barra Lanes mm -hmm. in New Jersey and had the bowling alley as their off season source of income. But then the commercial thing was just another way for grandpa, I think to supplement the income and support his family and still be able to send some money home to the family in, uh, in St. Louis. Well, as a kid growing up in Queens, I, I remember the you who the Yogi Berra with the, the, the trading cards and on the, on the caps of the, of the soda bottles and stuff. And, uh, that was one of the, the first big promotions I can remember with baseball players associated with it completely and and they used to say he was was he part owner of that company i don't think he was part owner i think no just yeah. a, as paid as a um as mm -hmm. a spokesman i will throw this in since we're talking about you who whenever people tell me to give them a yogiism <laughs> they've never heard before i don't know why people haven't heard this one but in the late 50s when he and mick were introduced as the pitch men for you who they had a press conference and there was a female reporter in the front row and I became a female reporter. So my grandfather told me this story and she raised her hand and she said, excuse me, is that hyphenated? Meaning the word you who? And he said, lady, it ain't even carbonated. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites. Yes. That's <laughs> the, the, the film is called It Ain't Over. We're here with the executive producer, Lindy Barrett. Lindy, when did you get the idea to put this film together about your grandfather? Uh, so it was not my idea at all. Our our 
big producer, Peter Soboloff, uh, in June of 2018, went to see the Mr. Rogers documentary with his wife. In his words, she dragged him to go see the movie. <laughs> and he ended up loving Won't You Be My Neighbor, the, the Mr. Rogers doc. And the next day was our Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center golf outing. And he went up to my dad and my uncles and said, how come there's no Mr. Rogers documentary but about your father? And they were like, we don't know. No one's ever made one. And he said, well, can I? And that was what really got the ball rolling. Peter had produced a movie previously with our director, Sean Mullen, who played rugby at West Point. So he is an athlete and a military veteran. And when my dad and my uncles first met him, they just loved him right away. He's a lovely human being. He's literally become like the older brother I never had. We spent so much time together the last five years. <laughs> um, but anyway, when I met Sean right away, I was like, all right, we got to get Vin Scully, Hector Lopez, Tony Kubek, Bobby Richardson, Roger Angel. We got to do it fast. These are not young people. And you're yeah. a Hollywood person. You don't know them. I'm a sports writer. You need my help. And that was kind of how I got involved was logistically at the beginning, just getting Sean in touch and lining up as many interviews as I could get with folks who had either seen grandpa play or played with grandpa because I wanted them to be able to speak to just how good he was on the field and how he was able to help and impact a team and, and what he looked like as an athlete. And then after just starting to do my interviews and talking to Sean so much, he had this little secret idea behind my back, went to the producers and said, I think Lindsay should be the narrator. And they all agreed. And then they came to me and I'm like, are you nuts? Like, I'm not a narrator. <laughs> I'm not John Facenda from NFL Films. But um, that's the way it ended up. So apologies to everyone. You have to listen to me for 98 minutes. Uh, you know, it, it's a wonderful oh, it 98 worked. minutes. It was. A, a, <laughs> I really loved the film. And one of the most poignant parts of the film was your, your uncle Dale talking about his struggles yeah. and how you how the family came together and uh, dealt with it. Yeah. So I think it's very important for people to understand that if you are a baseball fan, you will love this movie. But if you are not a baseball fan, you will also love this movie. The baseball is kind of done after 30 minutes. And the rest of it is just this uniquely American story that resonates with everyone. And I think what made grandpa you know, so popular over the years, what so endeared him to people was that he was so normal. And there was so much in his life that resonated in their own life. He's a first generation Italian immigrant, grew up very, very poor. So many of us are the sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters of immigrants or immigrants ourselves. As we mentioned, he's a Navy veteran. So many people can identify with that. He had this beautiful 65 year love story with my Grammy Carmen, who doesn't love a love story. And then when we talk about Uncle Dale's struggles with drugs, it was important for us to include that because I don't think there's anyone among us who doesn't know someone who's dealt with addiction problems. And even if you haven't, so many of us can identify with the lengths a parent is willing to go to to protect and in this case, save their children. And it just makes grandpa's story, you know, it's his complete story. We didn't want to leave stuff out. And it just makes him that much more relatable to, to folks who can identify with what he was going through. And he had a very close relationship with Phil Rizzuto. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Scooter was one of his best friends. And I <laughs> we do deeply regret that this was not a seven-hour movie. Because if it was, we could have put so much more Phil and so much more Whitey and Hank Bauer and Moose Scourin and Eddie Lopat and all these guys I grew up with coming in and out my grandparents' front door. Um, but Phil was a, it was, he is my father's godfather. Actually, my dad, Larry is, is uh, Yogi and Carmen's oldest son. And Phil is his godfather. And 
uh, Phil lived nearby here in, in Hillside, New Jersey, and and Grandpa and Phil stayed super close over the years. And it's a well-known story, but when Phil was in his assisted living facility mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of his life, Grandpa would go there almost every day and play cards with Phil and then literally sit by his bed and hold his hand until he fell asleep at night. Those two were, mm. were thick as thieves. Wow. Um, it was a relationship that was super important to, to Grandpa. And then Grammy had a similar relationship with Cora Rizzuto, Phil's, Phil's wife. So it was really nice that, you know, over the years... Grandpa played 18 years with the Yankees, never, never left until he went to the Mets. And so many of those guys also spent a a really long time or their entire careers in the case of folks like Mantle with the Yankees. And it became like a second family. They were really like his brothers. Mm -hmm. It was nice. Your grandfather, he broke into the major leagues, same time as as Jackie Robinson. Actually, he was there before Jackie Robinson. But knowing what I know about Yogi, uh, he would be very accepting of, of, of Jackie. Although he may be discussing that stolen base up in heaven with Jackie right now and insisting that he was out. I'm 100% sure that that is true. So a couple of things about that. So when Grandpa Yogi came out of the Navy, he played the 1946 season with the Newark Bears, which was the Yankees minor league team. And Jackie was with the Montreal Royals. And they played each other that season in the postseason in the minor leagues. And Jackie told Uncle Dale a story that Jackie, the first time Jackie came to the plate, Grandpa said to him, welcome to professional baseball and thank you for your service to our country. So the the first words that Grandpa said to Jackie were welcoming and expressing his gratitude. They were, there was never anything hostile, like no way. And, you know, I think Grandpa, I, I don't think you go to Europe and put your life on the line fighting for the freedoms of French people to come home and watch those freedoms be denied to your fellow Americans. And I think he felt very strongly about that. And he didn't care what color Jackie was. He cared that he was a good ball player and a good human being and fast as heck on the bases. And he had to be careful with him, that kind of thing. And from that day on, Jackie and grandpa were friends. So it was nothing for grandpa when Jackie was in the big leagues to go over and say hello and talk to his friend. I don't think he meant to be a civil rights activist. He just did the right thing. And the fact that folks saw him doing the right thing ended up being a good thing for the country, because I don't think that the America gets where it's going with the civil rights movement if baseball doesn't go there first. And I don't think baseball goes there if the military didn't go there first. And a lot of those guys who served mm-hmm. had already served with African-American soldiers and it wasn't that big of a deal. They all, mm-hmm. they were all, they all, they all bleed red, right? Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, your, your grandmother, uh, Yogi and Carmen, uh, there really is a love story. I mean, when your dad gave us the tour, of the museum, he's very proud of the letters that are on display that, that you, your grandfather wrote to your grandmother. Yeah, the letters are fantastic, and there's like eight of them, I guess, maybe on display at the museum. And there were more, and we don't know where they are, and that is a tragedy. But they are just hysterical. They're in the movie. Grandpa only went to school until the eighth grade, but he was to Catholic school, and the nuns would smack him with the ruler if he didn't have nice handwriting. So he has this beautiful cursive mm-hmm. penmanship. And the letters are just, they're, they're just, I mean, I love you. I love you. I love you. There'll never be another girl, but you, however will I last till I see you again? I miss you. G E E G. I miss you, darling. And they're just so sappy. And then he throws in like something ridiculous, like ran into Joe Graziolo or I went three for four today. Like they're just, they're really (laughs) funny and really sweet. And if you get a chance to come to the museum and see them, you totally should. 
Yeah, and and they met in St. Louis at I believe a, a restaurant owned by uh, Sam Musial. Is that is that right? It was Biggie's. Yeah, Grammy had Grammy grew up on a farm uh, in a place called Howes Mill, Missouri, and she and her sister came to the city to work in an ammunitions factory during the war. And then she ends up waiting tables at Biggie's on the Hill, and Grandpa Yogi sees her going in and out of the restaurant, and he thinks she's cute, and he gets Joe Graziola, and they go in there, and they're sitting at the bar. <laughs> Because they can't afford to eat there. So they're just sitting at the bar drinking glasses of water. And Joe would tell the story. He would say, Yogi, can we get out of here? I want to get something to eat. And Grandpa would say, Joe, I just want to look at her. So he was like a bona fide stalker. (laughs) uh, He wouldn't agree to go out with him at first. First, she thought he was first. She said he didn't date ballplayers. And then. She's she thought that he was a different ballplayer who was married. So. Uh, she said she didn't date married guys. And he was like, I'm not married. I'm <laughs> you know, whatever. And she finally agrees to go out with him. <laughs> and they were married 11 months later. So oh, it'll be. Wow. Absolutely. And she was in his corner every step of the way. Every decision, she was part of it. Absolutely. I, I don't know how Grandpa got out the door without Grammy Carmen. She was tremendous. Um, she would joke and say that the reason they were married was because he for 65 years was because he was on the road for half of it. But Grandpa Yogi also very famously said, we have a good time together, even when we're not together. They were just so cute. like even just, you know, watching them as older people. Um, he just always looked at her like he had won the lottery. It was the cutest thing ever. They were great. Yeah. And and your I, I think Yogi's nieces were in the film. Is that right? Yeah. So that's um my uncle John's. Well, he's technically my great uncle, I guess. Grandpa Yogi's brother John's daughter Barbara and his little sister Josie's daughter Mary Frances are are in the film. They both still live in St. Louis. Mary Frances actually still lives in the house on the hill mm. in St. Louis that Grandpa grew up in, and she rents the upstairs bedrooms out on Airbnb so you can sleep in Yogi Berra's Wow. Car which is super fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of grandpa's family is, uh, is still in St. Louis. A lot of Grammy Carmen's family is still in St. Louis. We had a screening of the movie at Chase Plaza theaters, uh, right by forest park in St. Louis. And I think the theater see, I think it sat maybe like 110 people. And I was related to like 85 of them. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Nice. Friendly like, crowd. Yeah. I guess we have to speak about the yogiisms. A lot of the stuff he said he didn't say, he said himself. Can you clear up any of the ones that he's uh, supposedly said that weren't that he didn't actually say? So the two that I know or that I see often that I know he did not say are two wrongs don't make a right, which is just dumb. And Love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball is pretty good, too. Now, that one is on the wall at Nationals Park and at the ballpark in San Francisco. And at Valentine's Day, I get tagged in it like seven million times on Twitter. Not a yogiism. Wow. Um, but the, the, those are those are the two that that jump out at, at me. Most of them, you kind of know at first they sound a little crazy, but when you think about them, they really do make a lot of sense and they're mm-hmm. very profound and I think quite genius. So if they don't make sense, they are not real yogisms. <laughs> well, the one that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it actually does make sense, is when you come to the fork in the road, take it because and that's that where one, he lived. If you, if you saw that fork in the road, that it makes perfect sense so he lives on highland (laughs) avenue and edgewood road goes up to highland avenue and edgewood road is a perfect y like the fork goes both at like 45 degrees it's a perfect y and both sides of the fork go to highland avenue 
So he would say, take the fork and make a left because it didn't matter which side you took. You got to Highland Avenue and you would end up at his house. <laughs> the town of Montclair has named Edge. The, the, the street is now Yogi Berra Way. And there's a plaque at the fork in the road. And if you put Yogi Berra's fork in the road into Google Maps, it actually comes up and you can see what a perfect why this is. And it makes like there's no way you cannot understand what he was talking about. But um, I like to use take the fork as like a euphemism for get off your rear end, right? Like, so uh-huh. <laughs> when I wake up in the morning and I'm like dilly dallying and I don't want to go out to the garage and work out. I'm like, Lindsay, take the fork. Let's go. So, you know, it's morphed over the years, but I love that one. <laughs> yes. You know, I, we have only a few minutes left and I thank you for your time. As you can see, both Gary and I are Met fans. And sure. Yogi, <laughs> Yogi had it. You know, we talked about Yogi with the Yankees, but he also had a good relationship with the Mets with Mrs. Joan Payson. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I talk about we have a Mets section at the museum and I talk about this all the time. Grandpa was with the Mets for 11 years. I mean, that is a not inconsiderable chunk like that's mm-hmm. that's a, a long period of time. And he was very proud of his time with the Mets. You mentioned Joan Payson. She was uh, my grandmother used to tell me stories about her. She was a total hoot. Um, one of my favorites is um, Grammy, Joan and a whole bunch of wives were out to dinner they were all a little tipsy. And one of the wives said, how come there's a Mr. Met, but there's no Mrs. Met. <laughs> and Joan Payson said, you want a Mrs. Met? I'll get you a Mrs. Met. And a week later, they had a Mrs. <laughs> Met. So I love that. And then just to illustrate how, how proud grandpa was of his time with the Mets. I love telling this story. I was at a bat dinner with him, baseball assistance team charity dinner when I was in high school. So I'm like 15 years old. They went around the room and introduced the celebrity at each table. And so they say three time. MVP, 10-time All-Star, or 10-time World Series champ, 18-time All-Star, Yogi Berra. He gets up, gives his little wave, and he sits down at the table, and he whacks me across the chest. That's how he used to get your attention. And he goes, Lance. And I said, Jesus, what? And he goes, how come no one ever mentions that I managed the 1974 All-Star game? And I'm like, "Uh, because nobody cares. But the point was... He had brought the Mets. They won the pennant in 73. He brought them to the mm-hmm. World Series. He was only the second manager in history to bring teams from both leagues to the World Series. He was super proud of that. And because he did that, it gave him the right to manage the 1974 All-Star Game. And he wanted people to remember what he'd done with that team. So hmm. the Mets were very important to him. He was very proud of that. Those guys, Art Shamsky, Ron Sabota, Cleon Jones, um, they they were they were like sons to him. Uh, Tom Seaver kept in touch their 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 whole lives, and uh, he he really liked being a Met. No, we like seeing him as a, as a Met. Gary, you have any final questions for Lindsay? I I just wanted to know how his relationship with Gil Hodges was. Uh, uh, being that you know uh, he worked on his staff and then of course took over for him. Could you just talk about that a little bit? So Grandpa and Gil were very, very close friends. We have a a picture, which I'm sure you saw at the museum, on Mm -hmm. on the wall at the museum um, from the 1955 World Series. It's Grandpa and Gil right by home plate. Gil had fouled a ball off the handle of his bat that hit him in the face. And this is the World Series, biggest rivalry in baseball. The Yankees had beat the Dodgers umpteen years in a row, whatever. And Grandpa jumped out of his crouch and he's got his hand on Gil's face like checking to see if his buddy's okay. It's a very intimate moment. You don't see two Mm -hmm. men touching each other like that. They were very, very close friends. Um, And he was more concerned about his buddy than he was about any rivalry. And, um, you know, they were very close until Gil passed away. He was so, so young when he died. And Mm -hmm. it was hard for grandpa to take his 
take Gil's position. And he originally didn't want to do it. But Joan Hodges called him and said, Gil, Gil would want you to do this. And that was one of the, the reasons that grandpa did it. And um, to this day, Gil Jr. and my father are really, really great friends. And when they see each other to screw around, my dad will sometimes walk up to Gil Jr. and pet his cheek and say, Gil, how you doing, buddy? You know, but, uh, we're so good. we went up to the Hall of Fame last year to see Gil finally get in. My dad and I yeah, drove here to be with the Hodges family. And, and you know, they were they were very tight, tight and that relationship meant a lot to him. Yeah. The film is called It Ain't Over. It's playing in theaters now. I believe it's also, you can get it on streaming services soon, right? it is now, uh, it is in theaters. And if you have the chance to see it on the big screen, I highly recommend that. But if you cannot, it is also available on demand through your cable provider, on Amazon Prime, on Apple TV, on Oh my God! What's it called? Voodoo? I don't even know. Voodoo? What I think it's Voodoo. 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 Xfinity. So it's There's available so to rent or buy on demand. I will say wherever you watch the film, please watch the credits. It really isn't over till it's over. We save some of the best stuff for last. Um, and you know, you can check us out. We are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If you like the movie, go ahead and leave us a review. If you don't like the movie, go ahead and keep it to yourself. <laughs> well, you're gonna like the movie it was i i loved the movie it was and i, I recommend seeing it I, i'm gonna see it again because it was just a, a fantastic movie Lindsay barra thank you for being a, a guest you. on baseball and bbq we really really appreciate it thank you so much for having me hi this is gary mack of the mets musings podcast and if you like barbecue and you like baseball then you have to listen to baseball and bbq with jeff and lynn They always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, all in one little package. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. Okay, guys, take it away. And we thank you, Lindsay Berra, for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. I really enjoyed that interview. And Len, I hope you will, too. I'm looking forward to it. And Let's thank again Gary Mack for filling in admirably for Who? me. Who? Who? Gary Mack. Oh, that's what I thought you said. Yes. <laughs> Boy, I I was off my game there. I know. Thanks for bringing me back with Gary Mack. <laughs> now I can't stop. I know. <laughs> but uh, and and again, Gary Mack does a great job with the podcast Mets Musings and the baseball talk radio show. And based on the way the Mets have been playing, I I have a feeling that if you tune into Mets Musings and you want to have other someone to feel your pain, if you're a Mets fan, I think he feels your pain and you could, you can listen to that and and you could all, everybody can uh, be sad together. Exactly. Exactly. So, Len, don't you have something for us? Yeah, well, I've got a couple of things, Jeff. First, let me tell everybody, baseballbbq.com. It is your number one place to go for grilling tools and accessories with baseball bat handles. Jeff, a little tease. We had with us Brett Mandel, one of the co-founders of the company. He will be on a future episode. And they are, they're killing it. They're, and why are they killing it? Because their products are fantastic. Baseball bat tongs, 
forks. Uh, they have um, the, the bottle openers. What, sorry, bachelors, bachelors, everything. And they have you could have it engraved. You've got the the uh, the cutting boards. It's just it's just great. So I recommend everybody go there. If you didn't get what you want for Father's Day, make sure you go there and you can get what you need and get what you want. And Len, I want to remind everybody, please, if you have a comment on the show, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. We have a Twitter at, weep, weep. at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please rate, review. Follow, subscribe, tell your friends, all that fun stuff. And Len. It's time for the Barbecue Quote of the Week. Barbecue is an experience that goes beyond taste. It's about creating memories and moments. Who said that? Melissa Cookston. Oh, Melissa Cookston. She's on Netflix, that show, Barbecue Showdown. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You enjoying that? You, you like that show? I'm a couple of episodes in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you finished it. I don't don't tell me who won. No, I won't. But yeah, because I couldn't stop watching it. <laughs> you know, I definitely I definitely binged it. And speaking of cooking and barbecue, and I, I don't know if this is the best segue in the world, but you know what? We now have with us Gloria Chabo, who, as I said, 40 years in the food business, happens to be friends with Guy Fieri. She was friends with Carla Ruiz, and she talks about all of that as we have a wonderful chat with Gloria. You never know. Mm -hmm. You never know what's going to happen. And what happened to us on a Saturday at the end of April, we attended the Jeff Michener benefit at Pig Beach in Astoria, Queens. We came upon a table, a space filled with some of the best looking best smelling and definitely best tasting desserts we have ever had. That was the day I knew what a real brownie tasted like. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since we have been waiting to have this woman back on, we are very pleased to have Gloria. And I hope that I am saying your name correctly. Chabo. Chabo. Mm-hmm. Chabot. Okay. Gloria Chabot. I, I butcher most names, so <laughs> you're in good company. All good. Gloria, we welcome you to okay. the Baseball and Barbecue Podcast. What a cool combo. Thrilled to be here. Are you a baseball fan, Gloria? My first game ever, I will tell you, as a child, was with the U- with the Senators. How's that one? No. Oh. Wow. Okay. That was my first game. I remember it vividly. Really? The uh, before nineteen seventy one, I think. Oh, for sure, it was uh, nineteen sixty eight to be exact. Oh wow. Okay. So, so so the funny thing is, you know, we 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 meet you at Pig Beach, mm -hmm. and and as I said, your items were so good. Now, thank you. You're, you're very welcome. And for, for anyone who we did have a, a small interview with Gloria that we just aired 
uh, a few episodes back. Jeff, what episode was that that they can listen to that? Jeff's going to let us know. <laughs> and uh, uh, 187. 187. So we interviewed Gloria. She was there with her with her desserts because you really do need some really good desserts mm -hmm. uh, at a barbecue thing. And not just your typical... I'm trying to think of Not just a chocolate chip cookie. You can't exactly. Get yeah. Exactly. You need the real good stuff. And that's what we had. And I actually took one of your desserts home. Oh, good. Yes. And and I gave it to my wife who uh, didn't want, you know, what isn't eating gluten. And so she starts out eating the center of it, which was like a fruit center. And she <laughs> loved it. And the next thing I know, she's like, well, maybe I can eat a little bit of the crust. <laughs> Just a little. And then the thing, it just disappeared. That's how it just, happens. You just yeah. make sure the evidence is gone. That's all. <laughs> Get rid of the bag or the wrapper. I never saw it. It's all <laughs> so we're going to have you on. So we start to do a deep dive and we're doing our, our research. And Gloria, I find out you may be baking goods now, but you've had some kind of career has really been a big, big time in the food industry. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your humble beginnings? <laughs> so I started off as a, a born in Brooklyn, New York. We moved what I call across the street to New Jersey. So everybody there had a New York accent growing up. And uh, my first job, to be honest with you, outside of babysitting was to bake birthday cakes for little kids. We, my parents were uh, young young parents so that when we moved to New Jersey, I was a much older child than were the kids in the neighborhood. And so all these little kids were having birthday parties. So I figured it was a cool way to make some money. And Wilton at the time was cake decorating company that everybody was going to classes for. So I said, oh, what the heck? So I did it and um, started making some pin money, if you will. And then I picked up a, a job in high school working at a local Jewish deli. And I learned how to slice eight slices of lux out of an eighth of a pound uh, and so that you can read the New York Times through it. You know, uh, trust me, those ladies, they wanted that paper thin. And I can't even I can't even quote what the price of the pound must have been back then. But uh, that was kind of fun. And I wanted to go to school to be a teacher. But I was doing this kind of baking and cooking thing. And a cousin of mine enjoyed my pastries and things that I baked. And he told a friend uh, that I had this interest. And this friend invited me into New York City to kind of see what the food industry was like. Like, if this is what you're interested in at 16, maybe you should check it out. And the gentleman's name was Joe Baum. And Joe Baum created Windows on the World, Tavern on the Green. Windows had just opened. So I got this phone call at 16. And the other end, it's like, hey, and I'm looking for Gloria, you know, Gloria Chalian at the time. And I'm like, uh, yes, this is she. And he's like, oh, this is Joe Baum. And you would have thought Bruce Springsteen called me. I <laughs> screamed. I was that geeky kid who knew exactly who Joe Baum was from Restaurant Associates. And and uh, I got to go into, the, he invited me into the city with my mother. And I spent the day and I'd never seen a kitchen so big, two stories of kitchens and pristine and every kitchen equipment you could ever want. People everywhere doing it was just incredible. And I was hooked. And he, he said, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I really think I'm going to become a manager. I'd like to run run this like you. Like, I think that'd be really cool. 
And he said, you're a really nice girl from the suburbs. Like you don't know you're in the kitchen. Like you need to learn the back of the house before you can be in charge of the front of the house. And so he said, go to culinary school, figure it out, learn how the kitchen. He said, you know, when the last thing you want to do is be a manager and know that your chef just took, made a a big roast and gave the pan to the dishwasher to clean and all of your profit and taste just went to the dish sink because he didn't deglaze it or she didn't do whatever. And you didn't get that all that you paid for to make that. And so I said, okay, sounds like a good idea. And so off I went to Johnson and Wales uh, in Rhode Island. And back then, most uh, I, w- I went right from high school, which was extremely rare. Back then, there was only one campus. Back then, there were not multiple campuses. And uh, I was the first integrated class of females in, in a dorm in culinary my year. And everybody that was the males that were there were mostly there on the GI Bill. And they were, uh, to my 18, they were 26, 27 years old. And they were putting uh, the money that they had gotten uh, to, uh, go to school, uh, and we're going to culinary school. And so that's what they were there. So it was a really very different, you know, I'm an honor society kid, I'm a, you know, at very academic. And I go into this very vocational environment, completely different. Uh, so it was eye opening for sure. And I loved it. And I still had the mission. So Johnson and Wales let you go on for two years of business as opposed to just culinary. So I stayed on for that. And got my bachelor's degree in food service management and a few weeks later got married and said, well, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing, which is go work catering events in, in a hotel, which was the key job. Or the other big one would have been to go work on a cruise ship. Again, I just got married. This is not a cool idea. And so I fell into what's called contract food service. So that's where you uh, a company supplies the food component to either a hospital or a school or a university or a retirement community. And those communities or businesses get to stay to their core competencies and whether like education, like they focus on the teachers and the the food service company focuses on delivering the food, which they need, but they're not the expert on. And so that has been part of my DNA and my job since the early 80s in one form or another. And in that path, it has been a pretty interesting path. I got to, I think the the part that you're probably alluding to, I got a chance to meet and work with Guy Fieri. It, the company that I work for in, created a partnership with he at uh, Montclair State uh, in uh, Jersey. And we were going to put in a restaurant concept, a quick service restaurant concept called GFOC, Guy Fieri on Campus. And the ideas were just on basically a napkin. Uh, It hadn't been created. There weren't any really recipes. It was kind of like a handshake agreement. And we were going to go ahead and partner on this. And so I spent a year working with Guy and his culinary team to work on what that meant. And uh, I was blessed to make some really great friends in that process, obviously Guy. And um, another gentleman named Carl Ruiz, who is a Jersey uh, local lore, uh, Carl the Mad Cuban Ruiz. Um, and he and I ended up becoming the best of friends. We opened up an amazing restaurant. We had a lot of fun. I've had the pleasure of, you know, a uh, guy was kind enough to let me go on diners, drivers and dives a couple of times now. And I've been on grocery games, um, not competing, but I was at the register at grocery games and just fun and being a part of it. And he's just been so inclusive and fun and obviously meeting all of the chefs that go along with that whole world. It's kind of cool uh, and uh, a lot of fun. And that's kind of how I came to Pig Beach 
which was the whole barbecue circuit world Carl Ruiz uh, was very enamored with. As a chef, it was an area that wasn't his expertise, but it was one he truly respected. And so he and I would travel a lot for culinary events and I would be his sous chef. Um, We did it at ESPN. We did it in Savannah. We've gone to a lot of different places and we cooked together um, and I would help him out. One of the places that we, a lot of the friends came to, the barbecue folks came to was Pig Beach. One of the first events I went to was actually the Jeff Mishner event and uh, was just blown away by the team there with Shane McBride and Matt Abdu and Rob Schwager and and the, the owners and was the generosity and the and everything they did to try to honor uh, Jeff and his family. And then not very long after that, Carl passed away. The Pig Beach team could not have been more gracious and kind to open their doors and let me conduct a fundraiser at Pig Beach when it was in Gowanus. And uh, they've just been good friends. They've just been, uh, Carl has uh, been gone now. It'll be four years this September. And the camaraderie and the friendships have remained. And so when it came time to finally have a fun Pig Beach event in honor of Jeff, I threw my hat in the ring and said, hey, can I come help? And they said, yeah, we don't have any baked goods. And I'm like, sure, let's do something fun. And so Matt and Shane said, do whatever you want. (laughs) Uh Like, wait, I, you know, I'm like, you want one dessert, four desserts? What do you want? And he's like, whatever you want. So I said, okay, let's do it. And so that's how that came about. So that's how it got me to Pig Beach. And it's through the love of those barbecue folks and friends that I've made that it was just the right thing to do. Uh, and they continue to be. And actually, they're going to open the doors for me in uh, next September, not this September, but September of 24. We're going to do it'll be Carl's fifth anniversary and we're going to do another uh, fundraiser there for that. Oh, for him. good, good, good. When we met you at, at Pig Beach, you had an assistant who you called your mini me. Your daughter was <laughs> there as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I see on Facebook, yeah, you have a couple of pictures of her uh, also cooking on, on there. But I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned you went to Johnson Wales, and I told you back then my son went there as well. He did mm-hmm. hospitality, and uh, it, it, and we've been, I, so I know the area well. That's in Providence, for anybody who doesn't know, it's Johnson Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. But my research, I heard you spent some time in Newport, Rhode Island. You I did. Tell, uh, you want to tell yeah. us about that experience? So I, wow, you really did your homework. Um, I was a, so one of the jobs that I, early jobs that I got at after graduating school or after culinary school was to be a private chef at a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island at the Galette, private Galette estate. So if you know the wine uh, B&G, uh, it's Barton and Goussier, Mrs. Goose, the Goussier was Mrs. Galette. And so they own the only mansion still in Newport, even to this day, that is by the original owners at 40 steps. Other mansions have changed hands uh, through the years of different owners. That's the only one that was built for the Galettes and still remains in the family. That family owns Gardner Island in New York. That family founded Chem- Chemical Bank. <laughs> just, you know, and they have money back from when it was New Amsterdam. But ah. I had the pleasure of uh, being a private chef in that very upstairs, downstairs environment. It was a blast. My husband at the time was uh, working at Itchel Newport, which was an alcohol rehab center. And we were there during the height of uh, the America's Cups and the races and Dennis Connors. It was just a blast. It was where you wanted to be if you were 22 or 23 years old and and just enjoying the summer for sure. It was a cool place. 
Well, I mean, those mansions are still. If anybody goes to Newport, Rhode Island, there's definitely uh, it's it's a it's a spot to check out. It, it's really a lot of a uh, lot of boating there, like you said, big mm-hmm. mansions. It's a a nice place to uh, spend a day or two. The funny part was I can remember being in one of the rooms and the walls had if you tapped on the walls on a certain point, it would open up and it was a secret door and there were sinks behind the doors so that again years ago all the rooms used to have flowers fresh flowers so they didn't have to traipse with water there was a sink kind of tucked in every room kind of behind the secret wall it was like crazy this little wow. stuff like that you know you you say oh sure and that was a summer cottage let me remind you this was a summer cottage <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with over 30 some odd rooms <laughs> wow. oh my leavable really funny yes so it was a good it was a good place. So we thoroughly enjoyed our time in Newport. And from Newport we went to Newport, we went to Portsmouth. To Portsmouth, we went to Medford. From Medford, we went to Mansfield, Massachusetts. Mansfield, we went to uh Weston, Florida, Weston, Florida. We went went to Lynchburg, Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, to Bel Air, Maryland, and Bel Air, Maryland now to Bluffton, South Carolina. So that's what 40 years of marriage will do for you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That that's like uh that's like military family. Yeah. <laughs> Food service, you know, people you go where the jobs are and uh right. you, you have a better chance of growing in your positions if you move, if you stay where you are. I don't I don't think any position you grow as well as you do if you bounce a little bit. So Yeah. Now now Gloria, you're from the research I did, I don't know if this is your whole career, but at least part of your career, you would go in to to a place and uh I guess the apropos name uh if they were making well, they already have this as a I think a movie, but if they were going to do a remake and they would call it the fixer. You you were kind of the fixer, and uh, yeah. So yep. I want to I want to hear a little bit about that, and then I want to know who do you think should play you in the movie or the TV series? <laughs> sure. So um, I would. Uh, so when I first started in this business, I was put into an account to in a university to run the dining program. Unfortunately, we had gotten what's called a cancellation notice, sixty day notice, soon after I two weeks after I'd gotten there. So we had 60 days to kind of get everything right and try to make the client happy and make and run the program. And I worked really, really hard. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was commuting from Newport, Rhode Island to um, the Fenway in Boston, 70 miles each way because I was working at Emanuel College. And I learned an awful lot. And by the time I finished, the place was pristine. The food was great. Everything was wonderful. But I didn't have a job. And so I had originally been hired to work at Northeastern University by the same company as a trainee. But three days before I was due to start, the uh, HR department called and said, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? And I go, big fish, small pond. So that's how I got to Emanuel. And so when we finished that assignment, um, the president of the company said, look, I can put you back at Northeastern and you can be a trainee, but you now know more than a trainee is going to know. What do you want? Would you want to go around and fix accounts now that you know how to do that? And so I spent the next many years on the road, coast to coast, from north to south, east to west, fixing, working with clients and negotiating internally and externally on how we can fix things and maintain our relationships and our contracts and our clients. And, uh, you know, it's as simple as everything from teaching a salad person how to make the salad bar right or a deli person how to buy the right meats and how to slice them to how do we work out the contract terms. So, 
it was an interesting path. Uh, I loved it. But my true, you know, uh, one of my biggest claims or strengths is in determining what retail should be on a, a community and how to grow that part of our organic growth in terms of uh, how to get more money out of the existing base that's there. Um, and it's certainly not anything that I learned in Johnson & Wales, <laughs> but, you know, because that wasn't part of that scope, but the management courses set me up to understand business. And that's really what uh, then propelled my interest in that side of it. So that's kind of where I was. But, and as your second part of your question, who would play me, <laughs> I guess you'd have to have my mini me play me because that would probably be the only one who could. And when, for those listening, it's my daughter who literally is a clone. Uh, the only thing she's missing is about five inches of height. She's only five <laughs> foot. So, uh, but that would be who probably would be the best one. And then you had your, uh, was that your niece that was there? She was, <laughs> she was adorable. She was really so. So I have a very dear friend, Will Shear, who is a uh, executive chef in his own right. He uh, was Madonna's personal chef for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, his daughter, Daisy, who is like my niece, came to help us uh, give away brownies. So she was pretty excited to be peddling the wares, if you will. And she was hawking them everywhere she could. Now, remember, this was all free, but she was peddling them as if she could have been Yankee Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> popcorn peanuts you know she was right up there but she was cute she's a so, sweetie so tell us the truth you, you must have taken a break during your time at pig beach you had to sample some of the barbecue wares during during the day no i really didn't get a whole chance i was pinned until i finished serving it was about 1 ish and it went till Four or five, I can't remember. I think it went to five. Um, so I ran out of pastry right around one thirty, I think it was. And then I started to walk around and kind of see where everything is. And the talent that was in that space, mind-boggling. I don't know how you rank anything. Every single one of those chefs that were there represents, I mean, the the team that was there from Five Monkeys, uh, George and Andy, you know, came from California and Washington to come donate their time and effort. They don't have a restaurant. They each have day jobs doing other things. One sells barbecue sauce. One's an executive chef in a hospital. Um, but they pulled that together. Um, that was pretty cool. You know, Tuffy Stone. I mean, Matt and Shane. I mean, everybody. Uh, Peg Light Porker. I mean, Carrie Pringle. Uh, there's nobody. I mean, U Bonds, my friends from Yazoo, Mississippi. You can't forget them. Billy Durney from hometown. Mm -hmm. I, I just there's so many talented people and I I just love it the fact that you get to try all of it and you can't have a bad bite that's the coolest <laughs> part about it I mean that's the neatest thing so I wish I could have tried more I I will definitely figure a better, better way to do that next year but uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun did Michael Simon come over oh Mike so that that was funny. So um, before the event, we all got letters from the production company that if we wanted to talk to have some TV time or whatever, they were going to talk to a couple of chefs. So I had spoken to the production team and I'm not, obviously I wasn't barbecuing. So it wasn't really of interest to them to kind of have Michael do a segment on it. I'm like, sure, that's no problem. I understand it's baking. It's not like the same sizzle for his barbecue USA show. So when he came downstairs, because at Pig Beach, there's an upstairs and a downstairs. So the production kitchen's on the lower level. And so he had done a lot of work upstairs the day before. 
And then he came downstairs and he was going to film some folks doing some uh, Johnny, John Wheeler with uh, some ribs and, and tough, toughy stone. And he literally stopped. I was at a table and he goes, whoa. Ooh, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I had just iced all of the maple walnut cupcakes that had a bourbon maple cream cheese icing with candy bacon. And he's like, oh, no, we're going to film this. <laughs> and he's like, tell me what this is, because there's always room for dessert. And so he started to eat it and we had a little chit chat and they filmed it all. And then the, his, the uh, production assistant went to take the cupcake away from him, you know, cause when those guys are eating nonstop on these things, they can't eat everything from beginning to end. They wouldn't be able to walk through the door. So they went to take the, the cupcake away. He goes, Whoa, no, no, no. He's <laughs> like, I can talk about barbecue and still vintage this and you're not taking it from me. So he was really happy with that. Now he laughs. So I don't know if it'll make the cut for the barbecue USA when the show airs, but uh, it, he made my day for sure. He was very sweet. You, as you were talking about that cupcake, all of a sudden it, it brought back memories. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was really good. But uh, yeah, the, the cupcake, the brownies, you, you know, a, a proper brownie. And I told you that I've become a big fan of the British baking show. Yeah. And, um, and they had an episode where they had them make brownies and, mm-hmm. You know, um, Paul Hollywood and Prue are talking about the proper British brownie. <laughs> and and it, and yours was just it's the gooey in the center, <laughs> a crisp on the outside. Oh, it was oh so perfect. It's funny. I was in Paris uh, a couple of years ago with my sister-in-law and we're walking through uh, Ile St. Louis and I w- stopped past this pastry shop. And I'm like looking at all, and I was just enamored to see all these things that I'd studied for so many years. And I'm looking and there's chocolate chip cookies and brownies. And I turned to my sister-in-law and I'm like, why would I travel all this way to come have a chocolate chip cookie and a brownie? And this woman, French woman walks past me and she goes, we have it for you Americans. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I'm like, I don't need one of these. I promise you I'll have anything else in the shop, but that it's like, I didn't travel all that way, but. A kind of chocolate but a brownie crisp. is one of those things. It's a make it or break it. Everybody, yeah. They like the, yeah. uh, the edge, the crisp, the edge, right? I kind of like more of the middle, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the chewy. Yeah. Nope, that's my daughter. My daughter will literally cut the middle of the pan and take the piece out of the center. <laughs> she will She will literally do that. She'll leave all the edges and cut right in the center. I'll make baklava and she'll go, okay, I just want this. these four pieces here. You all can have the rest. Yeah. That's you know, the same with the with Sicilian pizza. Some people they're like, "Did you get the corner piece?" Because that has two, two sides of edges, <laughs> the sides, and then some people just you know want the center, no crust, yeah. but lots of cheese and dough and oh. exactly. Oh, it's boy, funny. Jeff, I'm hungry now. <laughs> you know, Gloria, uh, on this podcast, we have the opportunity to interview a lot of uh, barbecue and uh, cookbook authors. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming, looking at your background there, you are quite the collector of cookbooks. I'm just under a thousand. Yes, you probably just uh, under. <laughs> you say on your Instagram page that you're a obsessed cookbook collector. 
I am pretty much <laughs> to my husband's uh, d- dissatisfaction. But yes, it, when he sees that prime drop pull up, he knows it's another cookbook. So it's, <laughs> I try to get them all delivered while he's gone Monday through Thursday. But somehow they keep showing up on Friday and Saturday when he arrives. So do, do you have any barbecue cookbooks in there as well? Oh, yeah, sure. There's a whole section down here. So, um, oh, wait a second. So, you have a section. So, there, uh, it's like the library. You have different sections of the books. Oh, absolutely. It's all zoned out. And there's still a whole other room that has cookbooks as well. So, you've got all here, you've got over there. And then I have in the other room. But yeah, no, it's, yeah, Pat Martin's got a great book. Uh, the Pig Beach Cookbook is really awesome from Shane and uh, from Matt. I love it. Handsome Devil, Ed Randolph, who's yep. yes. amazingly awesome. Yeah. Sam Jones from Aid, North Carolina, from Skylight, has in his great book. Schlesinger, Chris Schlesinger is always a classic to have. That's one of the early ones for sure. I would say those are the big ones. I just got one. I think it's over. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Pat's is uh, Life, Life of Fire, which is, I just think is a really cool book. He's out of uh, Nashville. He also has a place in a couple and uh, he's got one in Charleston, but I think he's got about 10 or so places in the Nashville area. I don't, I don't want to go here. Do do, uh, do you and or your husband or daughter uh, ever go to the barbecue and uh, cook outside? Do we, you know, I am not, that's not my towering strength. My husband will play with the green egg and he'll, uh, he'll grill, you know, on the gas grill, that kind of thing. But the smoking and all of that, we leave it to the rest of those guys. They're they're so good at it. I just I'd rather let them do it. So I'll go to Pat Martin's in Charleston, or I'll go to uh, Rodney Scott's, and I'll go hang out, you know, there uh, for sure. Or Swig and Swine, and Anthony De Bernardo. I can never say his last name correctly. Another great site for barbecue. So there's so much good stuff. Like why would I want? And actually, they just opened a brand new one up in uh, Hilton Head. Caligny called Forest Fire, a young guy named Scott Forrest, a young kid who's just kicking butt and taking prisoners. Uh, He is really doing a great job. It just opened up a few weeks ago, and I've had the privilege of of checking it out. So, you know, I I let the talent do there. They don't mess with my baking, and I don't mess with their barbecue. (laughs) And I'm I'm checking out you checking them out because you did put a, a post of on your Instagram page from uh, Forest Fire uh, Barbecue, yeah. and it yeah. looks pr- pretty good. <laughs> what could be bad? I mean, yeah. he just does really good stuff, so I don't need to set that whole thing up and cook for sixteen hours. I just need to pull in, and that's that works just fine for me. And so we trade, you know, we just kind of we do a little swapping of baked goods for barbecue. It works just fine. Great. I'm going to recommend, and and he follows you on Instagram a cookbook for you okay it's actually by our buddy ray sheehan oh and absolutely yes so, i know ray absolutely yes okay so did you, award-winning barbecue sauces and how to use them the secret ingredient to next level smoking yep. she's going to her i think she may have it i see it on the shelf maybe my husband pulled it away well, it's a good book, so I, I'm no, he sure does, he does a great job. Yeah. He actually wrote an article on, about Carl after he passed away because he had a magazine, a newsletter that he did as well. Ray did, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yes, very talented young man for sure. Yeah, yeah. So now, Gloria, let, I want to talk about the two relationships that are um, one is Guy Fieri. Mm-hmm. I was not aware until we had a guest. Darren Worth, I believe it was Darren, Jeff, who said he cooked alongside Guy Fieri. I think it was uh-huh. Darren. Yep. 
Okay. Used to cook alongside him before Guy Fieri was actually Guy Fieri, you know, before he was Food Network uh, star guy. Uh-huh. I did not realize, I, I know Guy Fieri's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame, but didn't realize he was such a big barbecue guy. So tell us, a give, give us a little story or a little behind the scenes look at Guy Fieri. Talk about the most generous person on the planet. <laughs> That's Guy Fieri. So he literally got his CDL license because where he lives in uh, California, they have some really bad uh, forest fires, you know, the, the fires on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And one, when he was uh, came pretty close to his house at one point in the house that he was living in. And so he made it upon himself that he was going to feed the first responders in the marketplace where he was, where this devastation was occurring. And that's before his foundation had been set up. And then he he then created a foundation to help do that. For uh, He does a lot with um, wounded warriors and he does uh, veterans. Um, and then, as I said, the first responders, he's pretty attached to as well. And he literally built this truck, outfitted this humongous 18-wheeler that is a kitchen that any of us would dream to have. <laughs> and it's on wheels. And he didn't want to be dependent upon anybody else. So he went out and got his own CDL license so he can haul that baby wherever he wants, when he wow. wants to. And he does. Wow. And he shows up the moment there's a need, doesn't even think twice about it. He's on the road and he's there with it. I yeah. think that's pretty cool. He certainly doesn't yeah. have to. He could easily write a check. That's not what it's about. He wants that connection to people and he wants to get back. And he consistently does. And like I said, I, I just respect him immensely for all of that. Yeah. And then there's another person that you had the relationship with and you My husband spoke about with all these relationships. Who else did I have a relationship? <laughs> Hopefully he won't listen to this. <laughs> but that's actually Carl Louis, Carl Ruiz, who oh. uh, he passed away very young. You know, he was 44. Mm-hmm. But what a life um, he had. I mean, I heard him with Opie of, of Opie and Anthony fame. And um you know, which is just you wouldn't think that 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 would be uh, a common thing. But but listening to Carl, it definitely you would think once you hear him. So tell us a little bit about Carl. Carl, Carl Ruiz. Yeah. Carl Ruiz was a once in a lifetime person that crosses your life. He had the un- uncanny gift that when he spoke to you and he list- he always wanted to know more about you then tell you about him that he then you became the expert to him on whatever it is you did on the baker to him. I was the baker and anybody else who needed a baker. Oh, I'll tell you who's a great baker. Let me tell you about my friend, Gloria. And if somebody else walked in the room, he'd say, Hey, do you know that Gloria is a great baker? Like he was always about lifting up the other person. He had an uncanny knowledge of food. Like, I don't know how he knew what he did historically, I mean, his head was a steel trap and what he could do with nothing amazed me. And he never was upset if somebody said, Hey, can I get that recipe? Or can I, he would be more than happy to walk anybody through recipe because his whole point was he wasn't one of those chefs that said, I'm not going to share that because his feeling was he could have created a new recipe for something in a second. The person asking for the recipe probably couldn't and needed it. So he was more than happy to share his knowledge with whatever it was. 
But he wasn't a one-dimensional chef. He wasn't an Italian chef. He wasn't a Cuban chef. He was everything. Like there wasn't a culture. I mean, I can remember we were cooking at um, ESPN and he came up with a sandwich. He goes, okay, we're going to make an Elena Ruiz. And I'm like, Elena Ruiz. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And he's like, oh, it's a turkey sandwich with some jam, cream cheese. Then we pan fried. I'm like, where did you come up with this one? Because clearly it's a classic sandwich. Like, what, what did you miss that chapter? Like, don't, I guess I did. And he literally, and so when I Googled it and researched, Walker was right. It was a classic sandwich. <laughs> like, piss me off. Like, I'm a scholar. You're not. How did you know that? And so... You know, we just we hit it off. And he um, when we were opening up that restaurant in, in uh, at Montclair with Guy, he was Guy's rep to help me. And I was the rep on the Sodexo side. And we worked hand in glove to and we just came up with this friendship. And, you know, I was old, much older than he was. So it was like the old, uh, doing what he was supposed to be doing or I would help get him book his tickets to where he needed to go or made sure. So it was like that right hand that kind of. Uh, others have called me his wrangler for lack of a better word to you know when he lost his cell phone hmm, now I have to figure that out so Gloria could you figure that out and so I would help him do those type of things because he was the talented he he truly was always on that so he had a love of watches he had a love of cars he had a love of bourbon and he had all of these people in silos so Carl had his bourbon people and he had his watch people and he had his Ferrari people and and the food network people like any. And so when he passed, I had to call people. And so like I had to figure out where somebody fell in the tree and then, OK, all right, you're going to be at the top of the barbecue folks. I need you to call and <laughs> get to these folks. And I'm going to going to jump to the watch people. And like because <laughs> the, the vast number of people that that were connected uh, to him was unbelievable. And people didn't know that they were friends with him because he kept everybody kind of grouped separately. But what's happened is there's been this amazing connectivity of people, of friendships that have been strengthened by the commonality and the friendship of who he was. And so that's the cool part that's come out of it. You know, if out of tragedy, something springs positive, that would be what I would say came from it. And that people, uh, he had a saying, hashtag, he would write hashtag Ruizing. And so that was like living life to the fullest, you know, living it in the moment. And that was what he lived by. And so there's this whole group of people. So as people honored Carl, you know, as I said, we had a, a, a fundraiser for him. And then when then COVID hit, it was kind of hard to pull people together. I encouraged people on his birthday and on the anniversary to go out and or order food in, or even have your groceries delivered and tip like a baller, because that was Carl's favorite thing to do. He would go somewhere. If the, the bill was a hundred, he'd leave 200. Like he just wanted to make sure that the wait staff uh, were taken care of. He knew that they were always the ones that probably got the shortest end of the stick and worked the hardest. And especially with somebody who might be a, a drunken uh, disorderly, <laughs> rowdy kind of person. And so he always made sure he tipped well. So uh, during COVID, we did this thing where I asked everybody to do exactly that, to tip like a baller and on the ticket, just write, don't stop ruizing, hashtag ruizing, whatever. We had, I was tracking it and I asked people to send me what they did to the receipts. We had somebody from every state by the weekend 
make sure that they showed me their receipt, that they had left this really cold tip. We had somebody in Canada, somebody in England, and somebody in Romania who did it as well. That's the impact of Carl Ruiz. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. He is sorely missed. There's no doubt about it. Gloria, thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, I have another question for you before we let you go. Uh, I just want to know, where did you come up with the name Baker Goog? Ah, so when my uh, cousins, who are like my siblings, were trying to say the name Gloria, it didn't work very well. So it was uh, Goog, uh, Guga, Goog, you know, baby talk. And my uncle used to call me the great Guga Muga. And so when I had to come up with a handle for Instagram, I just put Baker and Goog together. And that's how Baker Goog came about. Those yeah. cousins are now in their 50s, but that's okay. <laughs> do they still call you Goog? They do. That is my <laughs> name at home. That is exactly my name at home. And the next generation calls me that too. So, so great, Guga Muga. Yeah, uh, that is it. I, I have a question. I heard you um, talking about this and you know, we we don't really talk much about like the restaurant business on here, but I thought it was very interesting. So maybe other people will as well. You were talking about when you were going to open this uh, Guy Fieri restaurant at the college, mm-hmm. right? And you were talking about how there's restaurants that are 365, well, closed for Christmas, mm-hmm. unless you're, you know, yeah, and then you have the 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 restaurants on like a college campus mm-hmm. which have like dark periods because yep. they're closed for some holidays they're closed for the christmas break the all these you know spring recess whatever and i thought that was interesting because you were talking about certain foods that you wouldn't make at one versus the other so can you just Tell us a little bit about the difference between the two types of restaurants. Well, if you have a brick and mortar restaurant that's open basically all the time, you're doing production. So you're chopping up lettuce and tomatoes or you're making hamburger patties and you're planning to use it tomorrow, today and tomorrow. And then guess what? Tomorrow you're going to prep for that day and the next day. In a college campus, the challenge is that we have these dark or I call cold kitchen periods where there's nobody on campus. So that means that the lettuce and tomato I chopped yesterday now has to go to a a food pantry because I'm not going to be here for 10 more days because it's spring break. So now there's a waste. So you try to figure out how to maximize it for the community. So you go donate to a food pantry. But the other problem to that is that now when the kids are coming back from spring break in this cold kitchen, you have to bring people in typically a day, if not two, before you really open to get all the production going again. You have to thaw meat, you've you've got to chop up. And so you have that going against a non-revenue day. But in a brick and mortar, you're always bringing money in because the restaurant's open. So I'm covering my salary. But in a college, you have these cold or dark windows that you don't have any revenue in, yet I have expense. So you try to minimize the production as best as possible to be the day of so that you don't have to bring somebody in early. So as an example, guy likes to do at one point, he liked to do bacon on a bacon burger and he would weave it sort of like a a lattice. Mm -hmm. Well, that takes time to do that. And so that's one more thing that you have to think about and plan to do again before you open. So is that the item you want on the menu? Or do you think through, geez, maybe we'll just do a burger with grilled onions 
as opposed because I can slice onions the morning of without a whole lot of production. That's so. interesting. It's really, <laughs> yeah, that I, I find it very interesting. Maybe nobody else will, but I always say we, <laughs> we do this podcast for us. That's and if people cool. listen, <laughs> well, you know, I will say it was interesting and guy and I've talked about it when, when he had his restaurants on the West coast, he had full service restaurants, you know, fine, you know, not fine dining, but casual dining restaurants that were open all the time. And then we were opening up this concept and he didn't understand, you know, the other thing too, in a, in quick service, you have to feed people in a small window of time. So in a college campus, when the class breaks, there's no negotiation. Well, we'll see you in 20 minutes or we'll see you in an hour. They have to get to the next class. So you've got to be able to move people through. So again, what's the food that's going to do it? What's the delivery? And so he learned an awful lot and, and, on quick service from the ways that we manage the thousands on a college campus. Well, you, you made, you have lived a fantastic life. Uh, why don't you, it's not over, but you know what? I know Jeff's, on... Jeff's putting you, he's, he's got the shovel in his hand. No, 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 no. Take the, take the time. Give us uh, your social media, anything you like to plug uh, before we let you go. Sure. So on Instagram, I'm Baker Goog, B-A-K-E-R-G-O-O-G. On Facebook, it's Gloria Chalian Chabot. And if you are on um, Chef Carl Ruiz on Facebook, I'm the voice behind that. So I keep it going for those that want to keep connected to Carl. Um, and we do that on Facebook. So I do that as well. Well, Thank you very much for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. We really appreciate it. And we hope to see you next year at the Pig Beach as well. Count on. Thank you. You guys have a great day. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, Baker Goog, Gloria Chabot, for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. What, what, a, what a fascinating career she's had. Quite the career, food, the food, in the food industry. Not joking when I say those brownies, some of the best brownies some of might be the best brownie I've ever had. So chocolatey. Did she send you the check to say that? Yeah, of course. No, (laughs) (laughs) I wish she had sent me some brownies actually, but she did not. Gloria, if you're hearing this, send like brownies. (laughs) Please. They they were so good. (laughs) And now Jeff, I want to tell everybody that we are brought to you. By a bet online, it is where the game starts. And that means we're not starting, we're ending. And Jeff, how do we end the baseball and barbecue podcast? With the poet. Shel Krakowski. And the musician. Dave Dresser. And the song. Baseball always brings you home. And we'll see you next time on episode number 191.